You are listening to How Bass Music Shaped British Society, a podcast series exploring the history of Jamaican sound system culture in Britain and how its legacy has revolutionised music, from sound, business and culture to people, preservation and society. This episode continues the conversation with historian, writer and academic Paul Gilroy. I want to ask um, two questions related to your decision to actually have dreadlocks because, mm. you know, in Jamaica there was um, the way that police and official mm. organisations would come down on. Yeah, and cut, um, cut locks. Yeah, yeah. You, shall, you shall not trim dreadlocks in prison. Yeah, Max Romeo. Now, of course that's true, and that's not just going on there. And the, and the I mean, there was a big case in Birmingham, I think, I can't remember the guy's name now, Steve Thompson, I think had his locks cut by the police, you know, so this is going on, you know, and, and Hansworth is not, you know, whatever whatever it's become, you know, and I know there's all sorts of things one can say about it. These things are, are absolutely vivid, alive, on fire, you know, on, on the streets of that, of that community. And all of this, remember, is building up to the riots of 81, yeah. you know, which is a huge watershed in the life of this country. People don't remember, people don't understand the significance of it. And, you know, but there again, there, the, music, never, the music never lies, I'm sorry. The music never lies. So if you want to, if you want to see the impact and transformation of that um, process and, and see it in relation to the music, I remember in the middle of the riots of 1981, I'm still living in Birmingham, must have been the bright start in April, but they run off and on through till July. That's a long period. And right in the middle of it, Black Uhuru came to the Bingley Hall. <laughs> Do you remember that? I don't know if you were interested in that at that time. But, you know, this is the moment of general penitentiary, for God's sake. And everyone said, everyone said, it's going to be a riot tonight, you know. And it's going to start after that concert, you know. So everyone's in there. And, you know, Michael Rose is up there on the stage and he's singing General Penitentiary and that Sly and Robbie are hitting it and that syndrome, bang, the, the cell door is slamming shut like that, bang, bang, bang. And out, everybody in the room thinks there's going to be a riot. All the enormous quantity of police who are arranged outside waiting for us to come out think there's going to be a riot. And, you know, God knows how that didn't ignite because it's igniting everywhere during that time. And if you really look at the press coverage, if you really look at what's going on through that summer, you know, leading up to the, to the July riots, you know, you, you'll, you'll see it could, have, it could have ignited anywhere, actually, at any moment during that four-month period. I want us to try and unite the response, both in Jamaica and the United Kingdom, the inherited response that people have against Rastafarians. You know the 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 look the lack, mm. the, the way in which social politics can actually say well you won't get a job mm-hmm. you don't look you, you don't look proper yeah. you need to look far but more we you know we didn't want that from Babylon really right. we didn't but, want that I right. mean and right around here you know I mean I, but when I came back to London at the end of eighty one I was living in Stoke Newington my downstairs neighbour was was Eddie from who was in the band Tribesmen who we locally we revere Tribesmen because they made our anthem, Finsbury Park, you know. Um, I think it's one of the few records from that time that Dennis didn't produce, although it's got Rico. <laughs> but Paget King, who was a keyboard player of, um, of uh, Trisman, they were all people locally here. And what I'm trying to say is that, that, that the, that movement was still, people were still reasoning, meeting, 
there's, and there are a number of different factions, actually. There are a number of, I don't call them factions. There's, um, there's a number of different tribes, let's call them that. There's a number of different tribes, you know, within that, within that community. And you've got people in Tottenham, Jarbones, and all those people who perhaps have a more Nyabingi, more nationalist thing. Then there's, there's others, all, ranging all the way through to people who, who have a more activist relationship to it. You know, some, some believers, some, some not, you know. So you can't, you can't compress all of that into one story, I think you could say. No, absolutely. And I think that's, again, going to the double consciousness and thinking about the Black Atlantic, mm. when you have young black Britons mm. who are, who make that decision, like yourself, David Hunter, mm. and many mm. others, mm. Many who, others make, yeah. who make that decision to become Women too. They're clubbed in together, yeah. in, irrespective of... From the outside, yeah. Yes, from it's the true. outside, externally, whether or not their decision to locks up is mm. religiously, mm. politically, mm. socially, yeah. completely managed. Yeah. But, but it is outlandish, though. It is. You're a sufferer, and you become a sufferer. Even if you weren't one before, you become it, because you become a target, actually. You it's do. a declaration. Well, you did. Yeah. Now you don't, but maybe then you, you did become... You, know, you, were, you, made, you accepted your target status, is but what But that I'm adds saying. to that, that hierarchy that you mentioned, whereby if somebody is a fashion dread, how the, what they are deemed or deeming to take from the perspective of this, wearing my mm. hair in this way. I don't think so, that had happened yet, okay. because I think that was that you couldn't mess about with all this really. I don't think you would have you would have you would have been on the streets of Handsworth if you'd gone around being a fashion dread. You would have been attacked by people on the street. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, was I just can comment on that because to be seen as a sufferer uh, was more important to many within the community because they were already being identified by the state, by the yeah, police. Yeah. So it wasn't a big leap. To present as a fashion dread in the context of that was wishing yeah, yeah, yeah. an ill onto yourself. You, you just wouldn't do that. But yeah. at the same time, aspiring members of the community, black males, would move to Seoul. Some of them felt yeah. this was a way, I am not going to locks, right. I am going to dress in a yeah. particular way. Yeah. I'm moving on. And yeah. there's a transition period out of reggae into a more accepted mm. profile. Yeah. No, I think that's true. And I think you will find that, you find that echo. I mean, I think I, I absolutely agree with, with Michael's account of that division and separation. But I think that from, in terms of my own life, I'm really, and maybe, the, again, this is to do with age, I don't know exactly. But it seems to me that those choices and those differences are things that really were. Um, I would I would say that that followed eighty one and the cataclysm of eighty one, and what happens then is actually having jobs becomes possible because people have realised, you know, that the country will burn if something isn't done about it. But let's just say there's a rising generation of newly politicised young people who understand their predicament as sufferers, who know where the front line of those conflicts is with the police, with the state, and who are confident and who feel in a way they have nothing to lose because they have a claim on this place as citizens. They don't use the language of citizenship, but they know they belong here because when they, if they go back to Jamaica or their relations come from the Caribbean, they know immediately they're not of that place, that they're seen as English people, you know? And so, so we had to make something out of the fact. And, 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 that, and the music is that story, actually. That's what that story is. 
in the music, but at the same time, there's a strong, you know, um, we said at the beginning, we had to get the, hit, the details of the history right. So, you know, I think 81 for me is a very big turning point. Deptford Fire is a very big turning point. Sometimes, you know, music never lies, but the music also sometimes finds it too hard to say things out loud, you know? I mean, that the rise of dubbing and the, and, the, and the retreat of the voice, the retreat of the voice that you have in, you know, uh, in, in Roots Reggae, you know? The retreat of that voice is not just to do with the death of Bob Marley, it's actually got to do with what you can and cannot say. And, and, and in the context of, you know, uh, of, of hip hop, which becomes part of this story too, at this, at this moment in the 80s. Because I mean, you know, I'm trying to think when I first got the first hip hop records coming into my life from, I mean, 82, I, I remember coming back from New York with a big box of music <laughs> that I had picked up. And so that was a lot, I'm going to the Disco Fever Club, you know, in the Bronx and all of that, you know, and, and in, that, in that place, although hip hop was in, going to the Disco Fever in the early part of the evening and the DJ was cutting up Love Come Down by um, Evelyn Champagne King and some tune by Melba Moore and Jumped To It by Aretha was mixing those three. And it went on for about two and a half hours, I think. You know, at least that's what my memory tells me. So you've got all that, you've got all that coming in. In London, you've got Herbie Mastermind and a sound system, which is a soul sound system for the first time. Over in West London, your territory, Herbie Mastermind. And maybe the GLC is also organising things like Hip Hop Festival over at County Hall. So someone in their, you know, newly formed uh, ethnic minorities department of the GLC is saying, we've got to do something for the young people of this of this. Um, city and we've got to do that by supporting their creative entrepreneurial practice we'll do it by you know getting mastermind in to organize a hip-hop festival we're going to try and give some value or recognize the value which is which is there in the cultural industries however marginal they will appear and of course you know this is very exciting for me because i couldn't get a job as an academic i've been locked out from all of that blocked from job after job after job so i took a job working in the, in the glc i was very grateful to have it i worked in the police unit you know, uh, there with, with, with Courtney Griffiths, with Louise Christian, a number of other people. When the police bill came along in 83, 84, 84, I think it was, 84, um, we, you know, we did things like, we were allowed to do things like make that record with Ranking Anne um, and, and Neil, the mad professor, you know, kill the police bill. Courtney wrote the words. You know, I, I, I would like to think that there was an idea that emerged in our synergy, you know, Courtney, Courtney wrote, wrote the lyric. Anne was fantastic to work with. We went over to um, um, the, you know, Mad Professor's studio, which at that time was in Charlton somewhere. I don't know if he's still in Charlton. We went down there and we did that, made that record. And you know, so you get an idea of how the mood had changed. Not only was, it, was the government at local level committed to unlocking the value and addressing the complex needs of young uh, black uh, and minority ethnic people, um, giving value to their spontaneous and organic cultural work that they were doing as part of their struggle to survive, but also in beginning to see that there was an economic element in it also. I mean, I, I think one can abuse that argument because we don't really know at that time, you know, what the market for these products is and whether people outside them. But this is also the moment of the, you know, the rise of Brit soul. This is the moment of, you know, uh, Lynx and David Grant and Beggar and Company and you know I mean my favourite from all of that all of that world is um, uh, Total Contrast.
I love those two records that they made. I think they're fantastic records. Steve Harvey produced those ones, you know, takes a little time to get it right, takes a little time, takes a little time. And Alan Murphy, may he rest in peace, the greatest, one of the greatest guitar players that has ever walked the streets of London, does the just the pearl, the most perfectly sculpted guitar solo in that track. So, so this is the moment where, where, where there's, it's almost parodic actually. Seventy nine eighty, we have UB40. Oh, yeah. They were my local band. Police. 
we have selector specials. Oh, no, we haven't done that. It's so it's, it's also part of the response because when we talk about the community around mm. Mm. music now, we've broken out of the black uh, audience mm. space into a much wider space. Mm. I feel strongly about UB40. It's interesting. We should have talked about them when we talked about Birmingham, really, because that's not Handsworth. Do you know what I mean? No, no we've broken out. <laughs> we've broken out of Handsworth. And UB40 were my local band. I remember that. Play, them playing in, you know, some festival along Moseley Road on the back of a lorry. And they were truly terrible. I don't think, I mean, that boy always had a beautiful voice, but the others, they could barely play their instruments. And it was quite shocking. And in a way, it was a punk, it was a kind of punk thing almost, because I remember Roger, ranking Roger, from the, who went on to be in the beat. He had been in a punk band before called the Dum Dum Boys. I'd seen them playing in Digbeth and thought to myself, I, I only knew about three black punks. Here's another one. You know, it's like, definitely, let's remember that because this was like my sister. Then there was a boy called Herman Stevens who had a band called the Seagas Five, the Can't Give a Shit Five. I don't know what became of that thing. They made one record. And of course, you know, by that time, 81, 82, 81, 82, I think it was 1980, I'd been walking along the street in New York and I'd seen a poster for the Bad Brains. So I knew that there were there was a black punk thing happening somewhere, but I didn't know where. I didn't think, certainly didn't think it was happening in Birmingham. But I felt like, in a way, here three chords now form a band. That was the story of UB40, I expect. And of course, I know, you know, obviously, their, their relations, Ian Campbell and all that, and folk from the folk world, there was music in their bones, obviously. But, but as a reggae band, they were terrible. They were truly, truly awful. They could not, they could not play, although that changed very fast. They, 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 you know, and that was an was exciting sort of local story. But I remember once being at the bus stop, waiting for the bus um, by um, Cannon Hill Park to get, get the bus back up home. And Astro walked along the road from Balsall Heath and we just stood there at the bus stop together, you know, with our, with our you know, emergent locks. And we didn't speak to each other. And I just thought, well, that's interesting. You know, normally you would expect being about the same age and being the same place and waiting for the bus that a conversation will begin, but it didn't begin. So I don't know, you know, maybe that was me, but I don't think so. I just thought, I don't know what that's all about. Anyway, to get back to the story of two-tone, which is what was being suggested as well, I think that's interesting too, but it, it's also something that's part of, of, what, of what builds up to 1981, because it's very important not to think of the riots of 81 as black riots. I mean, I know that there's a story of the, of, the, of the Deptford fire, and it's true that what happened in Brixton with Operation Swamp 81 was a response to the militancy of people on the street after the demonstration about the New Cross massacre. But, um, but if you look at the people who were arrested in the early part of the rioting in April, you'll see that they're, they're black, white, brown, they were everything, you know? And, and I think, so for me, Two-Tone is, is about the transformed culture of youth in, in the period that leads up to 81. In a way, it makes more sense to look at 81 as the expression of that. And so UB40 would become part of that story, you know, special selector, etc. So that we've got Ghost Town, Ghost Town on the radio. Everyone's saying, how could this happen? How could this happen? You turn on the radio and it tells you exactly, you know, in a, in a loving, almost sort of pedagogic way. Well, this is how it happened, folks. Just listen. The music never lies. Because your identity and your value differs from that which you are listening to, it's not the same no. per, se, per, per se as Uptown or Downtown Jamaica. Yeah. It's not the same as... Yeah. New Orleans or, or Bronx New York. Or whatever, yeah. But what there are parallels within mm. that bind you. But the whole value 
of the Black Atlantic is to have you see yourself in as a descendant ancient. of within this Yeah, country. and that's true. And, of course, musicians are incredibly cosmopolitan people. Mm. I know that this doesn't get enough. It's a hard thing to get people to talk about honestly. So, you know, musicians, especially, I think, people who play at a certain level, their ears are always open. There's no flap on your ear. It's not like your eyes, you can close them and shut things out. So they're always listening for the next sound or for something. And, and, and actually nowadays, I suppose, now I don't know what happens. We were the generation of musicians who, who were self-taught or taught by other people that we knew. Now you go to college to learn how to play and you can't be a competent musician that comes out of one of these academies or music education operations, you know, unless you can play in every style and you understand what it is to play a samba or to play a clave or to play reggae or to play a few jazz standards or to, you know, manipulate the sound of your instrument so it fits into a whole range of genres and that becomes your professional training. But I think I'm, I'm talking really about Black Atlantic as a as a cultural matrix that precedes all of those things and is a vehicle for the cosmopolitan imagination of musicians and others actually not just musicians because it's there's a kind of there are literary or poetic uh, relationships one can point to as well so uh yes how i mean to me it develops from the things i was writing in the very early 80s about dub and about the meaning of of youth culture and black culture after the riots of 81. You know, in the book we did called The Empire Strikes Back and in some of the things I wrote for the journal, I wrote, wrote, wrote around that time. And then of course there's that big long chapter in Eight in the Black and the Union Jack where I try to say, well actually, what's coming out of the music, whether you access it through the African-American style sort of side, the portal there or through the Jamaican end of it, there are certain themes that you have to suddenly hear as resonating in common. What is, a what is it to be a historical presence in the world? What is it not to submit to the work ethic, but to uh, negotiate the play ethic? What is it to look to your creative and cultural life as the place where you make yourself rather than your life as a worker? You know? So there are themes that, that are coming from several different directions. And then obviously I tried to take that in Black Atlantic and really do something more with it. And music, you know, I mean, music becomes becomes part of it and I began in a way to realize that I could use the lives of Hendrix and Bob Marley as a kind of um, compass as a compass and and that's that was important to me because of course Hendrix was someone who'd been rejected by black Americans do you see what I mean there was a time lag and the time lag was important because the time lag was in England and he'd said he wanted to be buried in England it's like what why did he want to be buried in England? What was it about being in England that enabled him to create the things that he created, which changed the way that people do music everywhere? It becomes a planetary phenomenon at that point. So, and Dennis told me that he, I mean, I saw Hendrix playing at the Isle of Wight in 1970. I'd gone there to listen to him play. And it was just before he died. It wasn't very good actually, but that, never mind. But Dennis told me he, he heard that he heard um, Hendrix playing in a pub in Collier's Wood at a certain point when he was about 14 or he hadn't been in England all that long, I think. Anyway, he told me that he had heard Hendrix playing in a pub in Collier's Wood with the experience and that this had given him, in conjunction later on with listening to Third Stone from the Sun, 
from the record Are You Experienced? I don't know if that's British black music because it's recorded in Mink London, so it should really qualify. Although I imagine African Americans will fight you to the death to stop that from happening, but never mind. Um, but that's where he got his ideas of dub from. That his ideas of dub didn't come from Jamaica directly, they didn't come from Imitate, but they were born from listening to the experimental music that Hendrix was making in that. They were connected to that. So London, again, it becomes a London story. We've got London, we've got the planet, we've got the network, we've got the conversations of the Black Atlantic, we've got the movement of individuals, we've got the way that the sounds, the discs, the um, recorded performances uh, travel across that world. And so we're trying, to, we're trying to put those layers together and make a new map of how, um, of how black culture has developed during the 20th century. And in fact, in fact, earlier too, but let's just deal with the 20th century part of it. Am I being simplistic by um, suggesting that added to the Black Atlantic is that journey of the drum? You know, in so much as... Not at all. You know, the, I don't want to say buddy system, but they, <laughs> but they, act, they sandwich together in a beautiful you know, symbiosis because the, the journey of the drum and what it means yeah. and how the, the drum becomes amplified and that amplification yeah. becomes the bass line, that bass line becomes yeah. the rhythm within which and how Linton expresses himself. But that bass line becomes distorted when Hendrix comes here. Yeah. But Hendrix isn't allowed to play rock in the United States because rock has become commoditized and seen as white. And so I think one of the things that your writing permits is to is to look at the ev the evolution of reggae as it becomes two-tone by seeing how white artists mm. Mm. respond to the parallel social class experiences that reggae artists talk yeah. about, even yeah. though that is framed through race. Well, that's true because, you know, we can't control that. Yeah. It's like having a child. The child goes off into the world mm. and, you you know, you might want to control it, you know, you might feel that that's an appropriate thing for you to try to do, but that's always going to fail you, isn't it? So, so the music, if you think of the music as a creation, as being like a, a child in the sense that it has its own life, its own needs, its own desires, its own, and that you've contributed to them, sure, but actually you have, to, you have to back off, right? You have to let the child live. Well, that's what the culture's like. And that's why I don't really, I don't really like this idea of cultural appropriation very much because it assumes that you can, you can tame a culture, you can control a culture. In fact, is the culture is going to go where it's going to go. And if the sound of Congo Square, if the sound of the funeral, the second line beat from New Orleans becomes the soundtrack to the planet Earth, right? Then that just happened. You know, you can't, you can't put it back in the box after it's gone on. It's gone off stalking the world. You can't. You can't wag your finger at it and say, no, you really shouldn't be there because it is there. And that, that's just the way, the way things work. You know, culture lives, culture moves, culture changes, it mutates, it's restless, it's recombinant, you know. It's like a virus, it's a viral culture. It goes everywhere, it does all these things. And you can't, you can't wag your finger and say to that virus that's just invaded your body, you know, oh, no, you shouldn't really be in there. You have to deal with the consequences of it being there. And that's, that's what culture is, you know, that's how culture works. So, so finger-wagging and sort of stupidly disciplinary rules and so on, culture isn't property, it's alive, it's not an object, it's a living thing, you know? And, and this story of, of, of black music in, in, in the world, you know, from that very moment where Frederick Douglass is, is saying, you know, these people are listening to the sounds that the slaves make 
and they can't work out whether the slaves are happy or sad. It's asking questions about how you come to judgment, how you create aesthetic categories, how you create philosophical interpretation. Are they happy or are they sad? Well, maybe it's both, or maybe, maybe you need to recreate some new categories if you want to understand the power of it, you know, because it's, it's really tricky to know what that thing is going to be next. You, you can't really predict it. And the drum is fundamental to that. You know, I mentioned the second line sound of New Orleans because when I listen to Carlton Barrett playing, I hear Zigaboo Modelese playing. So, so, so that, you know, the tradition, if a tradition exists, you know, tradition involves choosing your ancestors, right? Choosing your, that's what tradition means to me, is the choice of ancestor. But your writing and the writings of Stuart Hall and others in this country stand as testimony to remind people that when you're thinking about your ancestors, that they are not always coming directly from the United States, that blackness yeah. is not African-American. Well, it, maybe, maybe it is, though. Maybe that's where the black thing comes from. Maybe that's their thing, you know. And maybe that's okay, because I remember Stuart saying, you know, well, when I came to, to, from Jamaica to England, I wasn't, I wasn't black, you know, I was a West Indian. I mean, Tabby Cat Kelly sings it, you know, we are West Indians, you know, in, um, in that tune that Dennis produced, what's it called? Uh, Don't call us no immigrant. You know, we're, we're West Indians. Now, what, to, me, to me, blackness is, in the world is really about black power and about a new chapter that's opened up by the the emergence of a black cultural politics after civil rights in the world. And, and of course, when, you know, when you've got uh, athletes at the Olympics standing on the podium with a, a black power salute, you know, the, the idea of blackness was transmitted everywhere through the medium of, of, of the TV and the film. Maybe the time of blackness is going to have its own history. And maybe one of the things we're witnessing now is, is it's breaking down into, into new patterns you know, I'm not saying maybe something will be lost there, maybe other things will be gained.
I look at these grime MCs and grime for Corbyn and all of that, you know, it, that's been very interesting, very beautiful moment for me. I, I think a lot of those young people think of themselves as Africans, you know, they're African people in Britain. And they have families who might be Nigerian or Ghanaian or whatever, Kenyan, Somali, Congo, Gambia, whatever. And, and, but blackness is a very ambivalent phenomenon in their lives. Some of them align with that identity. Some of them wouldn't say that. Black star, we're Ghanaians or we're Nigerians or whatever. So, so I don't think that we can freeze it. I just want to expand on that because 70s going into the 80s, Many Africans align, align themselves with Caribbeans, Jamaicans, yeah. through the music. Yeah. Jump forward to 2017, and you will find that now the dominant force in contemporary black music is not Caribbean. No. The influence is Caribbean yeah. in places, but there's a shift mm -hmm. amongst youth and their sense of blackness. Jamaica is now no longer the first destination for a, for a summer holiday. It's Spain. Mm. And in that, that it says something about the location and how blackness is viewed, certainly through youth culture and music, um, and what those spaces, um, uh, even where you choose for holiday, how mm. significant they are through music. It's from a black perspective. Mm. It's location, spaces, and youth. Mm. Um, it's... It's moved. Right. right, that's interesting. I mean, obviously, musicians want to make a living, and we want to make a world where musicians can make a living. Um, you know, I know that this is a controversial idea, and uh, uh, but I, actually, I think we, we need to really try to develop a, a politics, an uh, understanding of economic life, and understanding the value of culture, which allows creative people to make a living, which doesn't assume that the theft of their intellectual property, the theft of their cultural capacity, you know, um, is, is a natural and inevitable outcome. So, you know, when, when we think about how the geography of making a living has changed for black musicians in Britain, I, I suppose that's, that's helpful because I know that, for example, I mean, ask, you know, Linton and, and, and other people, even of that generation, Dennis, you know, that Neil Fraser, they're traveling all the time. I mean, Linton, not now, I know, but uh, but traveling all the time because they had to find markets for their creativity that enabled them to sustain and support themselves. Steel Pulse traveling all the time. People traveling all the time, all over the world, in Argentina, in Japan, in, you know, in Africa. And, and so making that map, that's a, very, that's a very interesting map to begin to make. You know, festival, culture, you know, the identification of different nodes in a global market. You know, we would call this, I suppose, we'd call it the globalization phase, really. Um, although how global it is and how even those markets are and how they change over time, you know, that's the kind of detailed information I don't really have. But I think we, could, we can say that it moves, it becomes, you know, was national, it becomes transnational, then it becomes global. I prefer the word planetary. It becomes a planetary phenomenon. It becomes a planetary form. It won't, but the word planet means to travel. So, so you know, it's connected to that word. So, so the idea is that we're dealing with a new set of structures now. And, and of course, with a computer as a mediating tool, with a computer as a mediating device, you can, if you want to pay for your music, wherever you are, you can pay and download that music or tap into that music through a, a streamer or a, a service, 
you know, from wherever you are, and you could, it'll go straight to your phone, you know. So, so we got to really deal with that. When, when I wrote Black Atlantic, I became, I'd become very aware of how people had begun to make music on computers. I, you know, I was a big fan of Mikey West and Rebel MC, as he is now, Congo Natty. And it seemed to me in the emergence of Jungle and the emergence of those sorts of electronic forms of music, they used to call it Raga Techno before they called it Jungle, uh, music where you have a sample of a Caribbean tune, of a dancehall tune, and a sample of an R&B, usually a two-step um, thing, brought together into a new musical creation which has been assembled on a computer, on a screen. Usually, I think they were using Atari in those days because people couldn't afford to have Macintosh. Atari ST was the, was the device of choice. So, so, so actually, once the computer becomes that uh, instrument for making that music, the, the, na the nature of those relationships, the nature of that network is transformed by the digital element. When we think about colonialism, which governs everything from how people eventually become named, what mm. kind of anglicised name they may have, mm. people's actual individual freedoms. When we think about the way in which colonialism steered the functionality of racism, mm. how people's individual liberties were curtailed in a variety of ways, mm. I would like you to discuss mm. the way in which reggae confronted so many different forms of Racism. When we, you know, when we, when we we've discussed Rastafarianism mm. because that is a response mm. to an expectation that, as a colonized people, you should look like mm. black mm. versions of them, that you should have, yeah. you should carry yourself with a stylized decorum that mimics our own, mm. that your hair shouldn't grow yeah, yeah. in a particular way. So Rastafarianism, the use of patois, mm. these are all anti-colonial expressions. Yeah. yeah. So when, you, when we think about the different manifestations of the subgenres of reggae, when we think about dub reggae, you know, how anti-establishment from a, you know, a rebellious form of music, mm. even dub is, because mm. it's rejecting the verse, chorus, verse, chorus mm. structure. When we think about the use of patois within reggae, mm. which is rejecting a colonial mm. expectation of how you mm. should speak and how you should entertain yeah. us. And then when we think about the way in which patois and bass lines, dub, the way that black femininity, black masculinity is utilised to confront racism that doesn't really, yeah. that often utilises gender as a yeah. way of actually punishing people on the basis of their race. Yeah. I was wondering if you could talk to me about, about, that. about that. Well, I think there's a problem with, the, with thinking in a very binary way about it, you know, that there's roots reggae and then there's lovers rock mm. and there's masculinity and there's femininity. And actually, for me, those things, I know that there are things to be said about love in this and that, that things that one says about love work on both sides of the line because love is a translation term. It takes you from one to the other. Every lover's rock record you can get, you can turn it over and there's a dub on the other side of that record. And, and for me, you know, when Frederick Douglass says, well, when you hear what the noises the slaves make and we have to struggle to interpret what those might mean, if it's not in the words that are being used, it's in the sound in the sound so so I would want to make some claims for the sound that doesn't matter if people are singing you know Gene Kahn lyrics or whatever that there's something about the sound there's something about the the sound itself which which can be part of a well I mean you, you talked about rebellion and you talked about a resistance and rebellion I think the sound can be part of resistance and rebellion and I think that there are also ways in which that sound can be can involve the power to create a space 
which is a different space in the dark. You know, the R&B singers used to say the night time is the right time, right? So in the dark, there are a number of things, and Linton writes about this in his poetry, a space is being created and it's utopian. It doesn't belong anywhere else. It doesn't fit anywhere else. It could be anywhere, but the transformation is complete of that space. And in that space, we have an encounter, not with the world that we're escaping from, but with the world that we are imagining as an alternative. Does that make sense? The music creates and projects a utopian possibility of a world that doesn't work the way that the world outside works. So I, I want to make some claims for that. Of course, it's very nice if you've got a beautiful poet, you know, coming into your ear, who's also helping you to get to that space. And sometimes, sometimes the poet, sometimes the DJ, sometimes the singer, the sing J, will help you to find that space. It's like they're navigating you there, right? But, but actually, it's about that space that's important. And, and that really comes, that's, that space, I would say, is unimaginable can't be experienced without the music. It can't be experienced without music as the organised sound because, because the music summons that space, the music summons that possibility. Would you say it was reggae, I know you mentioned it earlier, that reggae gave you confidence in, in so many different ways. Um, listening to, yeah. listening to, to, to reggae music, just as a fan, but also as your creative juices starts to marshal. Yeah, and you think, well, there are people like, there are people like me in this world. I'm not by myself. We, we, are, we are a force in this world. We can damage this world. We can, we can imagine another one. We can, we can make a better world. And we have an intimation of what that world might be. You know, I remember being in a, in a dance in the back of Digby's Civic Hall. I can't remember who the sound was. It was, you know, I guess it was just before I left Birmingham. It must have been late 81 or something like that. And Quakers, maybe, I don't know when it was. I have to look up the date. You know, I think it was Quaker City or Moan Basel, one of those. There was a big sound clash going on in there. And the record that they kept playing, they had on a pre from Jamaica, was Spear. It was the second version of Bad to Worse that Spear had made. And they just kept playing the opening <laughs> of that record. Wow. 
It's almost like that utopia I'm talking about, which is summoned by the music, can be a negative utopia. It's not just like we're all, everything's solved and everything's, you know, sorted and we can embrace and love and, and play, you know, in this space which is uncontaminated, which is pure, which has been democratised in all sorts of ways. It can be a negative utopia. It can say, you know, that the, the way to free yourself here is to accept just how bad the world can be. We know it can always get worse, that we know that there's nothing that's so bad that can't be worse, but, but we have to sort of see that utopian um, feeling as a, a really complex thing that the music facilitates, to use a bit of jargon from, from now, you know, the music facilitates that encounter with utopia, with the other way of being and thinking and loving and desiring and experiencing things you know so that's why it's so very important when you say to, to hear yourself to 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 have artists talking about not only your social conditions but also the tragedies that beset those here in the united yeah. kingdom yeah whether in through a british tongue or no where when police harassment detention deaths in custody when these things happen where there's an acknowledgement that yeah. there's a march for 13 yeah. children who died right. in the fire exactly. with this scant you know, investigations when somebody's mother dies in during a police raid, with, when reggae is actually the voice of that because... Yeah, it's... well, you know, if you take Sir Collins' record, I don't know where it is, the New Cross Fire record. Is it here? I was looking at it the other day. If I was to just put this on, this is Sir Collins paying tribute to Steve Collins, his son who was the DJ at that party. There's the boy's face on the back of the record. If we were to put that record on now, the first track, New Cross Fire, is a dub track. So that's telling you something about what can be said and what can be spoken and what can be put into words and what exceeds the power of words to capture and convey, yeah. you know. Okay, my final question. Bear with me. Okay, so this is from Stuart Hall and Paddy Wannell's publication on the popular arts and culture, where they say here, um, the blues are one of the most, the most original and authentic of popular forms Within the limits of popular music, no form has managed to retain so much of its original force mm. while being so rapidly and widely absorbed and adapted. 
The blues are both the heart of Negro American folk music and the soul of commercial jazz. This is a double life which few mm. popular forms can boast. Yeah. But reggae yeah. has birthed different. It does, what yeah. I wrote a piece songs? called The Blues Between the Blues and the Blues Dance that I wrote. I'll send you if you haven't seen it, Please. which is really addressed to that question. And and it gives me gave me a chance to talk about my love of blues, actually, funnily enough. Mm. For exactly those reasons. No, but Reggae, you're absolutely right. But you, you know, I think the, the, the problem is, the challenge would be to sort out the categories of marketing, you know, and selling the music as a f form of commodity uh, from the categories that we want to use as interpretive um, devices or critical devices to make sense of the life of the music in the world. And we know that, you know, black and, Amer well, American corporate culture has at different times experimented with different racial labels that they put on the, the music. It was race music, then it became rhythm and blues, then it became urban, etc., etc. And and I think what, the story of blues as a category within all of that is really fascinating because it ends up as a kind of white collar working class thing. I mean, I went to see Buddy Guy. I like Buddy Guy. I respect Buddy Guy. I went to see Buddy Guy in Shepherd's Bush a few years ago, and everyone in the building, everyone was was white actually, everyone. And of course, this is to do partly with the globalization and the transformation of markets. And we talked about reggae musicians having to go to Croatia or Spain to make a living. Well, blues musicians have to go to Japan or come to England to pack a hall for, they don't have to do that. But, you know, I mean, blues wasn't something that, that African-Americans necessarily wanted to identify with. And there's a very strong regional aspect to that. I mean, one of the, I've done a couple of guest spot gigs with a touring blues act for which Sam um, Kelly is the drummer and um, it's very interesting to hear and to witness the, the kind of scene, the submerged blues scene of England going around doing a few of these gigs in, you know, in, in the most unlikely places where the, you know, I mean, it's very easy to dismiss the relationship that people who love those forms have to those forms as stamp collectors or cultural appropriators or whatever. And actually that would be a terrible, terrible mistake because there's something about there's something about the openness of those forms and the the way that they're they're like mirrors or something that you you whoever you are you might be able to recognize something of yourself in in what's being offered to you sonically what's being offered to you culturally what's being offered to you you know in terms of your your fantasies you know all of these things you can c connect and and I, and I just don't, I don't, I don't think you can tame music. You cannot. It's feral. It, it's feral. It will just do its own thing. And, and, you, and, and reggae and blues both have that capacity now as planetary phenomena. I mean, jazz doesn't, I think, what's jazz in black America? To be honest now, I know that Wynton Marsalis and Stanley Crouch and all these people have made through the Lincoln Center as an institution, they've made jazz a bit like classical music in a way. It has a standard repertoire, people are all trained in the same way, you know, you, you learn to play the standards. It has you, you you of course there's a beautiful thing in the sense that you infuse that standard with your own personality, with your individuality, with your daring, with your imagination. But, but it, it acquires certain properties of, of, a, of a classical music. It becomes a kind of corporate thing. Tickets are very expensive. It's like going to the opera, you know. Um, well, I, I think for me that, that's, 
the museumification of jazz in some way. Do you not think that that was probably <coughs> that that path was taken was embarked upon in order to legitimise? Oh it yes. So, so it wouldn't be. I'm not. I'm not saying that's that's not worth doing, but I'm saying there are costs to that. I mean, when my kids, when we lived in the states, you know, my son used to play in the high school jazz band. And it was very, and they would go to the Lincoln Center competition for high school jazz bands all over America, and then he just he he walked away from that saying it's dead, you know. I want to go and find people to play with who've got a sense of the music as not complete, you know, as being something that can be added to. And if you want to do that with jazz, you probably have to go to I don't know Cuba to find the pianist like Gonzalo Rubalcaba, although he's now in the States, who who took on. The traditions of improvising that jazz gave them and filled them with something else, or or go to Norway, you know, go to listen to, uh, you know, people like uh, Terrier Gewalt and other people all over the world now who've ta who've taken that on. So I think, you know, where things are sourced and how they emerge in the world as new phenomena, is always important to know, because if you're going to take possession of them, you have to do that in a responsible way and you have to be accountable for what you do with this precious thing while it's in your custody. So I'm absolutely clear about accountability, clarity, and history. But beyond that, clean slate. I think that's important because the, the notion that reggae is just, it just houses these subgenres when it has, it's, it's sired new So genre, much, yeah. You know, and I think yeah. that when we think about the blues and we can actually, you know, trace its, yeah. Um, it's paternity Lineage, through the last yeah. century. We, we, that needs to happen with reggae. With reggae, yes, absolutely true. But then the problem there is that maybe the interests of the Jamaican government in that story are not the interests of people in this country. There might be a clash there, you know? Um, I, I, I know clash isn't bad, I don't fear that clash, but we, but we should note the idea that if you want to try to use the incredible cultural achievements of your country to create more tourism and you know build resorts with walls around them where people can have the authentic reggae experience or whatever it is that they're doing in there that's one thing or if you want to put it in a museum you know which becomes continuous with the great story of jamaica in the modern world fair enough but that but the the nature of that story here will be different it will be different in a city of like london and the danger is that people die and institutions close and all those underground spaces that we that, that nurtured me and made my life amazing actually have gone and they don't have blue plaques on them you know and they don't have stamp collectors to say oh here we are on page 34 of issue number six of black music blah 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 this is what's happening in you know in the bouncing ball club or this is what this is what this sound system was doing. So you know, without that history, without that archive, without that living archive, without a real sense of the complexity and importance of all that, then it becomes impossible to access. It's like some sort of becomes archaeology. What was the first venue? When I say venue, yeah. I actually mean um, publication that, mm. that you were published in. Well, when I was a child, I published some poetry in a book of children's poets, child poets. That's not going to count, I suppose. I think maybe in 73 or 74, there was a, there was a magazine called Let It Rock that was run by the, Let, the uh, Rock Writers Co Cooperative with people like Simon Frith and so on in, involved in that. And I, I must have submitted my top ten to that, you know, my, my sort of, you know, 18-year-old um, um, top ten or top 20 or something. And yeah. as you matured, yeah. and as you were critical yeah. of the agenda, yeah. how, you know, 
motivated yeah. and cultivated at home, you then gravitate towards Rock Against Racism. Yeah, I published in Contemporary Hoarding. Uh, I used to write in sort of various left publications under um, my own name sometimes and, and other names too. And then, you know, when I came to back to London after I'd lived in Birmingham for three years at the beginning of 1982, I began to review Val Wilmer, who's someone who's always really helped me and um, who, from whom I've really learned a lot about music. Uh, I mean, when we were in the disco fever in 1982, um, trying to work out what was going on in the South Bronx, she was with me, you know. So, um, so Val and who also was a kind of guide to the, the, the downtown loft jazz scene in Williamsburg and places like that. Um, she helped me get, to get a gig, uh, again, when I was being shut out, she helped me, she helped me to get to start to write regularly about music. And the, the people, that, um, the journalists of Time Out went on strike, it was a famous strike, and they, um, they set up a, a rival publication in opposition to Time Out called City Limits. And City Limits, I used to review records every week in there. And that, that was nice because it meant that I could try out some of my academic ideas um, that would then become part of um, Ain't No Black in the Union Jack and the other things I published before that. I could try them out in the form of record reviews. And, uh, and that was very, very useful to me, actually. And it also meant that people, people in, in, you know, who had money to buy records at that time you know, began to, in some ways, be, some of them began to be interested in my judgment, you know, about music, which was very precious, actually. It was very, very precious. As I became a writer and started to write more, I would encounter people when I went out to DJ or whatever, you know, who, who knew my, my writing and the worlds began to fuse. I mean, I remember DJing, um, there was a producer, uh, there was a guy called, um, what's his other name, Anthony's other name, this guy started The Wire. He put on a gig at the Empire in, in, um, in Shepherd's Bush, you know, and uh, it was, I, I think it was Aieto and Flora, and I was in this sort of DJ booth in the, in, the, in the middle of the thing, in the glass, playing tunes there, and, uh, and there were people, there were some people who knew me as an academic, who spotted me who spotted me at work in the, in the night, you know, it was, it was kind of embarrassing actually in a way, because I've always been very private. It's unusual for me to talk about my life in the way that you've asked me to do today, because I, I sort of feel like my privacy is really important to me. So thank you for giving me the chance to break my own rules about that. Well, thank you for interesting us. Mm. It's been a pleasure, mm. honestly. Well, thank you.